Why, hello there. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards, host of pureandsimplebible.com. And I'm so thankful to have another Bible conversation, this time with a great preacher and a friend of mine named Mike Criswell. Brother Mike happened to be at the congregation that I work with at Valley Parkway hosting a series of gospel meat, M-E-A-T, meatings, where we dug into the meat of the gospel of Matthew. Brother Mike wrote the commentary for the Contending for the Faith series on the Gospel of Matthew, so we wanted to have him come in and help our congregation know this epistle, or rather, this gospel better. And while he was in town, I wanted to talk about it on the podcast so that you could benefit from it as well. Let's jump into the conversation, shall we? I imagine most people know who you are, but if they didn't, who are you and what's your work and uh, what do you do? Well, um, of course, I'm, I've been in the ministry now or preaching for, oh, I don't know, 35 years or so. But uh, I'm based out of Kansas City, and I've been working there with the congregation for pretty much this entire time, although I've had a couple of times away uh, where I've stayed for an extended period of time. But I do a lot of travel overseas, mm-hmm. um, mostly focusing on Africa. Mm-hmm but also now on uh, the UK and then also Australia some when I, when I can get over there. Sure. But mostly my, uh, my interests have been in Africa. And I've been able to preach on six of the seven continents, but... Uh, no Antarctic No penguin churches. No <laughs> penguin churches. But uh, it's been a blessing. That I've, I've always been with just one congregation as far as the support system and all. We're not a big group, but just big enough to be able to support my habit, so to speak, or my endeavors. <laughs> <laughs> and they've always been just very evangelistic oriented. So if there was a work that came up that needed help, they were always good for me to go. So that's kind of what I've been doing now for the last um, 30 years or so. I'm so thankful to hear you say that about your home congregation, because um, I know there are some in our 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 group of churches who have the mindset that like two years and gone or a few years and, and then move on right. so much so that I kind of thought that's the way it was supposed to be. Like I, I need to work myself out of a job and um, the Valley Parkway, the church that I, I work with has been so supportive of, of my work that it's, it's made me realize that there's enough work that I, I don't have to do two years and, and then move on. And, and that's kind of a blessing on the family side of things. Right. And I think, some of this may be just a change in perspective back in uh, probably my parents day and even in my younger years we were very afraid of what we were calling the pastor system where one man came in and he became the pastor in more of a denominational sense and he did everything right he did all the pulpit speaking and he did right. everything he became the guy and of course the biblical model is to have Yes, pastors, but they're elders mm. who oversee a congregation. Mm-hmm. But then you have evangelists and other members doing things as well. And so I think that probably some of our reaction to keeping a man, a preacher, in one area came from the fear that he would become too either responsible, not so much powerful, but we didn't want to foster that where yeah. you had a one-man show. 
Right. And so we typically moved preachers around. In my childhood, my dad was a minister, a uh, preacher, and man, we were there sometimes at places three months or six months or a year yeah. or two years. Right. And we were sort of like vagabonds on the road. <laughs> but, you know, when you look at the biblical model, um, sometimes, for example, the Apostle Paul would tell Timothy, who was a young evangelist, to go. Right. Sometimes he would tell them to stay, for right. example, in Ephesus. So I think it's not a ma- matter of the length of time an individual, a preacher right. or evangelist stays in an area. It's what he's doing. Right. If he's continuing to evangelize, I don't see why an evangelist couldn't necessarily live in one area all of his life. Right. Right. Um, now, we need to be willing to go where the work is, of course. Well, but, I, Paul, for example, he always went back to Antioch, you know, during that those years of, of his, quote unquote, yeah. missionary journeys. We think of him as always on the road, but I mean, he was there a lot at Antioch in between. Yeah. And, and there's an advantage to having, I guess we could call it a home base. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that congregation doesn't necessarily have the wherewithal to support you 100% financially. Right. You know, Paul received gifts from other sure. congregations like Philippi, but there's a stability that that model provides, not only financially. Mm-hmm. If you get into some sort of a difficulty and you need to be taken care of support-wise, um, but also just doctrinally. You know, if you go out and preach something somewhere, there's somewhere you can go back to. You know, Acts 15 right. is kind of a, a paradigm for that because those teachers had gone out from That's, yeah, and, uh, from Judea, yeah. And had taught things, and so they bring it back to where they were from. Mm-hmm. So that, that stability, and I've always been very thankful to the congregation where I am, um, it, you know, we haven't always necessarily uh, agreed on every single thing. That's natural. Right. But we've had a really, really super good working relationship mm. of give and take. And um, fortunately, and many preachers don't have this luxury, they have, as a single unit, been able to at least support me enough to get by without having to go out to a number of congregations sure. asking for support. Um, so that's been a real blessing in in my work and then you combine that with their evangelistic fervor and it's it's a really a, a blessing that i've enjoyed for a number, number of years well i've i've asked you to come here today uh, not just to have a, a rah-rah session for our home churches although we could we could talk about how sure. the grass is greener on our side and not on the other side um i wanted to talk to you about the gospel of matthew which is why you're also in town so I record in Dallas. For those who don't know geographically where we are, you've you've driven what? Is that an eight-hour trip? It's about nine, okay. really, the way I drive. Okay. So you've driven nine hours down here to Dallas, and you're hosting a series of meetings each night, kind of doing an overview in the book of Matthew. And I thought it would be really nice for those that listen to this program to uh, get a taste of that, a taste of that gospel. Um some people may not know that you've written a commentary on it. So how about we start with that? Take me back to 20 years ago and who approached you about it and how'd you go about writing it? What was that process like to put this book together? Well, I was a young preacher back then. Um, wasn't necessarily a kid, but I was a fairly young preacher. And uh, we're going back probably close to 25 years now, which okay. is hard to believe. But at that point... Um, the affiliate of churches that we have, uh, the brotherhood, as we sometimes call it, 
wanted to do their own commentary series. Mm -hmm. It was called Contending for the Faith, and um, they wanted various preachers to be able to be a part of, you know, writing commentaries or at least parts of commentaries on every book of the Bible. Yeah, they started with the like the the pastoral epistles, right? They like did. A, a different preacher wrote each yeah. chapter. Yes, and and the problem with that was not necessarily the material, but the continuity. Because, for example, if you break a book like Timothy, First Timothy, up into various authors uh, writing about each chapter, there's not always a continuity sure. in the the you know the, the material. So gr- gradually, or probably actually more quickly things begin to change and they begin to assign books right uh one of the local congregations here in the metro area at that point sort of sponsored this and they begin to assign books why they chose me for matthew i don't know other than i think a couple of other people had turned it down (laughs) so so they asked me if i would do it of course i was still relatively close to coming out of college at that point i mean i'd been out for a while but um you know i'd taken a lot of religious classes i love to study I'm not a, I'm not a, a, you know, a doctorate or anything like that, but I have a religious degree, which kind of helps in the study part of it. Sure. So I don't know if that played a role or not, but they entrusted me and with this job of writing a commentary. Well, I, how I have never, I had never written a commentary. Right. Um, I'd you written couldn't articles. Google it back then either. How no, to write a commentary. you could not Google it. In fact, <laughs> all I had was just a little PC, but there was no way I had no internet right. at that point. But um, someone asked me one time, how do you write a commentary? And I said, well, one verse at a time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem with that is um, in, in, in a regular preacher's life, it's different than maybe an academic setting because let's say you're a professor. Mm-hmm. And year after year, you teach through the Gospel of Matthew in right. a seminary or whatever. Right. Well, at some point, then you have reams of notes. Right. And so you then draw from those notes. Well. We were starting from scratch. Now, I had plenty of sermons from Matthew, sure, but not an in-depth verse-by-verse study. And I've always been very, what we might call expository-oriented, where I just like to look at the text in its context. So this was kind of, uh, uh, you know, a, a thing that just fit my style. Right. But I didn't realize how much work it would be. Mm. Now, back at that period of time, what we were doing was Matthew has 28 chapters, but we, for the most part, we're doing five chapters a year. And five chapters of writing? Yes. Okay. Well, yes and no. Sometimes some of the authors, because we were doing various commentaries all at the same time, some of the authors would just study their material and present it orally and then later on write what they were going to say after they had presented it and fielded questions and that sort of thing. I chose not to do that because I felt like that if I would just structure myself and have both the presentations and the commentary written, those five chapters each year, then at least that would be something that I wouldn't have to go back and worry about. Sure. Now, sure. the editing, of course, is a whole other process. So each year, for those four years anyway, um, I did five chapters of study and writing each verse and then presentation. Uh, each chapter, of course, being a separate presentation. So it was pretty intense. And what I did was I, I, I just said, you got to discipline yourself. So right. I would get up every morning, not necessarily Saturday and, and Sunday, but every morning. And I would just go to my desk and I would work two to three hours right, every day. Now, the problem is sometimes you might get through 
four or five verses because there's not a lot of doctrinal or a lot of really difficult, controversial comp- components to that. Yeah. But sometimes you would hit a verse and you didn't know what it meant. Mm-hmm. You might spend two or three days on that one verse. Mm-hmm. And what you find over time um, is you'll find various sources because there are a lot of really good commentaries already on Matthew. But you'll find various sources that you tend to rely on. And those are the ones you're kind of go-to sources. And yeah. then, of course, as you become more comfortable with the process, you begin to interject more of your own ideas into it. But it requires a tremendous amount of research. Mm. Because you don't want to just come up with some left-field idea without right. bouncing it off of what others have said. Right. Okay. Did you preach a lot of Matthew during that time at your home congregation? I did at the home congregation. I don't think I did to the point that they became tired of it. At least they didn't complain. But I pretty much saturated myself with Matthew. And that was really good. Yeah. My wife told me um, back in that day, she said, you know, I think this is going to be a good project because I think it's going to help you know Christ. And I thought, well... (laughs) That's a real boost. I'm a preacher. I already know him. (laughs) Exactly. But she was right. Because when you immerse yourself in a gospel and a writer like Matthew, you really come to know the Jesus of that gospel much Mm. better. Mm -hmm. So it was a a benefit, a discipline, but a benefit. And, of course, most things that are going to be beneficial require discipline, (laughs) which as you get older, that's sometimes harder to to conjure up. But... um, you're not the first writer I've talked to that said that, that the thing that that worked best for them was to kind of set boundaries on here's the hours or the time of the day yeah. that I, I plan to set aside for it. And whether I write a hundred words or whether I, I pound out a thousand or whatever, uh, I'm going to devote these two hours each day of the workday for it. Yeah. So. Now, there are different styles of commentaries. You know, some are very succinct. Some of the ones that we have used in our fellowship um, like McGarvey and all, pretty succinct, succinct. Yeah. So you have to kind of balance, okay, how much do I want to say here? How verbose or, you know, preachy do I want to get versus just being more critically oriented about the text sure. itself? Um, so, you know, there are different styles of commentary. Some are more practical, some are more technical, and it's kind of hard to hit that happy medium. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I've enjoyed uh, the studies that you've had, and I read your commentary in present or in preparation for our meeting. So I'm still I'm, impressed. I'm well. It was it was a it was a great great book, very well written. I guess I'm for the the sake of the audience that's listening to this. I imagine most people that subscribe to Pure and Simple Bible have already read Matthew or familiar with it. I, I doubt there's going to be too many atheists and agnostics that, that listen to this program. But if there were, I'm mm-hmm. curious mm-hmm. what you would tell somebody who's never read it before. You know, they're, they're unfamiliar with the gospel. What is this book about? What's it trying to tell us? You know, what should we hope to get from it whenever we, we pick up Matthew? One of the reasons that I like Matthew, and of course, when we look at the New Testament, we have what we call the four Gospels. Gospel means good news, so really we just have one good news, and that's about Jesus. But each one of those writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a little different slant right. in that they are writing to different audiences. And one of the reasons I really like Matthew is 
he's writing to a Jewish audience. Jesus was a Jew. So if we can get to know Matthew a little bit, even though it's kind of long, 28 chapters, Mm -hmm. we really kind of get to know Jesus in his own setting. Sure. So that really is intriguing to me. So Matthew then will begin to talk or begin to write about things that would have, oh, struck an interest in his readership or in his congregation, as it's, let's say, that he wor- was working with. And so he presents Jesus in a very Jewish light. Mm. Of course, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus is the one that, you know, believing he's the Messiah, fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies about the Messianic kingdom and the right. king. So he presents Jesus in a very much Old Testament motif. And as some of our studies through the evenings have gone, just in this little series of of meetings that we've been doing, um, you know, Jesus is the new uh, Moses. Moses was the leader that led Israel. Jesus now is the new lawgiver. Jesus is the new David. David was the king of Israel. Now Jesus is the fulfillment and descendant from that line, lineage-wise. Uh, he is the new king. And there are various other things that Jesus then um, fulfills. So I think if someone is not a believer, for example, and they were to look at Matthew, what they would be seeing is a Christian's perspective, someone who came out of Judaism and became a Christian, mm-hmm. but they would be seeing their perspective perspective on why they could believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Most people didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. Right. Many people didn't believe he was the son of God or really anything very special as far as deity was concerned. Mm -hmm. But we have here an eyewitness because he was an apostle. He was one of the ones that Jesus called to be his closest companions. We have an eyewitness who is giving us not only proof for others, but his own proof of how I know this is who he says he is. Right. And that's important. You know, skepticism this is another topic, but skepticism is not bad necessarily. Sometimes mm-hmm. we meet people and maybe they're atheists or agnostics or whatever, and we just kind of automatically dismiss them. No, their questions are very valid. Yeah. And we ought to be able, maybe with some study, to defend why do we even believe in Jesus? Yeah. And so um, Matthew gives us this historical analysis of who Jesus was in his own culture. Yeah. You've said uh, across the meeting, and and I've seen this in in other sources as well. I think I've written about it some myself. But, you know, Matthew's Gospels for the Jewish people, whereas Mark's, which is significantly shorter, very direct, has definitely a Roman uh, quality to it. Like the Roman people were very direct, wanted to talk succinctly. And Luke would be for another audience and John for another. And and you just mentioned uh, some Jewish examples of, of Jesus and Matthew being like Moses, being like David. Um, tell us a bit more about this Jewish flavor. I know that prophecy is big and and uh, what, what would I I mean, it's not going to just say it in the script somewhere uh, to the Jews from right. Matthew. Right. Right. There are hints of this. For example, the very first chapter of Matthew begins with this long, for us, it would be dull and boring genealogy. Well, of course, to the Jewish mind, they knew that there would be a Messiah, but they also knew he would have to have a pedigree. He would Mm -hmm. have to have a genealogy. He would come from 
the lineage of David that had been prophesied. So Matthew is very meticulous to take us in his first chapter through this genealogy, showing us that Jesus did come from David and ultimately back to Abraham when God spoke to him and promised to make of him a great nation. So Matthew starts very Jewish oriented, if we will, and giving us the genealogy, the underpinnings for why Jesus could even claim to be the Messiah. So in Matthew 1, uh, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, a Jewish reader. I mean, this is going to go, ooh, you know, goosebumps yeah. because they were the upper echelon of what it meant to be Jewish, the father of the nation, the greatest king. That's of, that's right. Um, you know, Moses, of course, uh, had given the law to to Israel. Jesus becomes the new Moses as well. I don't know if I mentioned that, but... Yeah, all of these characters, whether we're talking about Moses or David uh, or Abraham, are all central figures yeah. in the old, yeah. the old covenant or the Old Testament. Well, I'm thinking as well in Matthew 17, uh, the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah is with yeah. Jesus on the mountaintop. And yeah, you have a representative there of the Mosaic period or the law. Right. Uh, of course, Elijah lived under the Mosaic period too, but sure. he represents the prophets. The prophets. And then Jesus, this new uh-huh. system, if uh-huh. you will. Okay. So, yeah, it, it does make sense that a Jewish reader and then us who maybe not, you know, culturally, I, I'm, I have no Jewish heritage. A lot of us don't. And so maybe we're kind of reading it through first or 21st century eyes. Mm-hmm. But what you're explaining is whenever I read it, if I can kind of put on those glasses from the first century, then these things like genealogies and prophecy would have meant uh, an incredible amount to a Jewish re- follower of Jesus. It, it would have meant a lot. In fact, it would have been a requirement mm. for the first century Jew. In fact, one of the things that you'll notice is uh, this emphasis in Matthew of Jesus being a descendant of David. In fact, he asks, you know, the people on one occasion, um, you know, about the lineage of, of the Messiah. And they say, well, he's going to be the son of David. Mm-hmm. So that was very important to the, even the Jew, Jewish uh, population on the street. Right. Um, so he wants to make for sure that there's no dispute about the lineage, about Jesus having that right. Now, that only gets you so far because there were others who arguably could have traced their lineage back to Abraham sure. as well. Sure. But, that at least he gets that out of the way in chapter one. Well, you said last night at, at the service that if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then no one else can be because all the genealogies were lost in 70 AD. Can you explain that to our yeah. listeners? Yeah. The Jewish nation, of course, had always been independent from the time they came into Canaan. Right. Uh, you know, you have the uh, exodus out of Egypt under the hand of Moses, and then eventually they come into the promised land under Joshua. But uh, they had always been independent, except for when people had come in and taken them captive, like in 586 B.C. Right. When Babylon. But in about 63 B.C., Israel was overrun by the Roman, uh, the Roman army mm-hmm. and was taken as part of the territory of, of advancing Rome. Well, of course, the Jewish folks hated that. And uh, because here you have an oppressive oppressor. Uh, you know, and they're now enslaved to... And they couldn't see it at times. I'm thinking about John chapter 8, whenever they say, we've never been enslaved right. to anyone. Right. 
which you know the irony is probably there's a Roman soldier at the end of the street keeping yeah. guard. You yeah, know. they they very much do what we do sometimes. We compartmentalize things, and oh, they viewed okay. their religious tradition as being something that had really never been affected. Okay. But now, the reason that this is important is because uh, as long as the temple and the worship structure of Israel was standing, of course they kept the genealogical records, they did the sacrifices. Judaism was still very much like it had always been. But now in AD 70, with the revolt of the Jews and then the um, oh, the Romans coming in and destroying the city, they totally razed the city, they tore down the temple, burned the city. All those records were destroyed from what scholars tell us. Right. So to be able to trace one's lineage back to the proper pedigree would now be impossible. Right. So um, so that genealogy in Matthew 1 um, is the pedigree of how he could be the Messiah. And nobody after that can. So if he's not it, this, this was your phrase last night, if he's not it, no one else can be. Right. Of course, there's a lot of other things that made Jesus right. uh, believable right. and made him who he was. Miracles his teaching. Uh Um, Like I said, there are no doubt were others who could have at least theoretically traced their lineage back to Abraham. Sure. In fact, even the Jews thought we were all children of Abraham. But that at least is a starting point for Jesus. And if we can't trace the records because there are no uh, records left, then if somebody popped up on the street today and said, well, I'm I'm the Messiah and... uh, I can go back to David. We say, well, where's the lineage? Mm. Where's the records? Well, they don't exist. Right. Can't prove it. Now, you mentioned just a bit ago that the Jews, when Jesus asked who the the Messiah was, they said he was the son of David. And that's, uh, you know, Matthew 1, uh, he was the son of David. But just the phrase son of David, and then um, you've alluded to this in, in some of the presentations Son of God, mm-hmm. Son of Man. Mm-hmm. Jesus has several titles in the book of Matthew and, and, and uses several expressions about his, his way, you know, the mm-hmm. kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And so if he's writing to Jews, uh, or at least there's a Jewish flavor to it, do, are these special titles for him? And is you know, what he's talking about with it being kingdom should there be special, um, sh- should these be important to us, I guess, as we read through the book? Right. I think they are important. I think they should be as well, but they are important. And let's just start with Son of David. As I mentioned a moment ago, um, the, the Jewish scholars and rabbis and all knew that when the Messiah came, he would have to be from the lineage of David because that's, you know, in Second Samuel 7, God had spoken to David and said, hey, listen, I'm going to build a dynasty for you. And there will never be a, a time when there's not someone sitting on your throne. Well, the Jews knew that. Mm. And so to be a son of David meant that you had uh, a biological connection. Sure. You had a physical connection through the lineage with David. Now, once you get to the concept of son of man, for example, which is another a phrase that Jesus uses to describe himself. In fact, in reality, Jesus uses the phrase son of man to describe himself more than he uses the phrase son of God. You don't find son of God very many times. 
Jesus referring to himself as that. But you do find him over and over saying, I, the son of man. In fact, in Matthew 16, when uh, he asks his apostles about his identity, he says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Right. And of course, Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right. But and that's important. I, you know, growing up, I, I always thought son of man just meant he's emphasizing his humanity. Uh, he's trying to tell us he's he's one of us. But that's there's more to the, the, the phrase than that. There's more to it than that, because it is true that son of man can refer and obviously conjures up the idea in our minds of humanity. Sure. Of course, Jesus is totally human, totally divine. Now, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is called son of man, but not in a deified sense. He's right. just a son of, of humanity. But the term son of man is actually a messianic title. Mm. So you go to Daniel chapter 7 and other places where, mm. you know, you have this son of man motif used. It's clearly talking about deity. Right. So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's not just saying, well, I'm just a human. No, he's claiming to be deity. When we think of sonship, and this is a little bit off the topic, but, you know, a son is going to have the likeness of his father. Right. He's going to have a connection to his father. Right. He's going to have the attributes of his father. He's going to have maybe even the power or authority of his father. There's a whole list of things that sonship implies. And, of course, when you think about Jesus, the son of David, he's going to have the lineage, he's going to have the power, he's going to have the throne. There's, there's certain things there that automatically connect Jesus to David. But son of man, well, that's a messianic title. So Jesus is going to have these characteristics, both of humanity, but also deity. And then when you come to the phrase son of God, obviously that's a deity issue. You know, Jesus has these characteristics of right. God. I, I'm thinking about in uh, Matthew when he's before the the oh I'm going to call them the motley crew of the Sanhedrin not the the actual Sanhedrin but in that that evening or that late night early morning session uh, when he's put under oath and he says you're going to see the Son of Man and I, this is Jonathan's mm -hmm. translation mm -hmm. or Jonathan's version you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory that and they're so offended by that and the reason they're so offended it's not because he's claiming his humanity but rather he's quoting Daniel and his divinity and that's why they're shocked and say he blasphemes because son of man they they knew what he was talking about right. a jewish audience would know that just that's right, right off the bat yeah. whereas gentiles like me might be a little bit dense whenever we read that right. phrase because we don't have that background of the prophecy of mm -hmm. daniel and so on and so forth but many times even today our preachers and people will present jesus as the son of man but only focus on the humanity sure well, it is true. Jesus is the son of man. He's the quintessential human. But that was a messianic title. That was a deity, a title of deity. And you're right. That's what got Jesus killed. One of the things that that I understand as I read through Matthew is he quotes a lot of prophecy mm -hmm. uh, that it might be fulfilled. This right. phrase that it might be fulfilled. And I heard you say this. I think I've preached it and others have as well, that in the first century, um, the scriptures that like Timothy learned from youth and that other first century believers had would have been the Old Testament scriptures, the, the, the law and the prophets. Mm -hmm. And so Matthew is writing this work and he's tying it back to the law and the prophets. Mm -hmm. What's that going to be like for them? Whereas for us, we, we might, we might know some of them. Uh, we might 
have read them before, but take us into, again, if you can, the heart of a Jewish first century Christian. What does it mean to have all those scripture, all those prophecies in Matthew? Well, we're going to cut it off right there. And if you want to hear Brother Mike discuss more about the Gospel of Matthew, then you need to come back next week. And we'll start right there with that question about prophecy. And then we will come back to it and continue on in the next part of the conversation. So please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so that you can have these downloaded to your smart device automatically and you can jump into the conversation as soon as it's posted. And go to the website, www.pureandsimplebible.com to check out all of the content that's there. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.